welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So if you're at All Saints, you will have received some pretty exciting news in the last two or three days. We have been looking for some months to fill a pastoral vacancy here uh, on the staff at All Saints to bring an additional pastor on board to uh, share in the ministry that Pastor Neil and I have been involved in together. I've been here for two years, Pastor Neil for a great deal longer than that. And the church has been growing, uh, opportunities have been growing, the congregation has been growing in size, there's more and more and more to do. So we've been looking for and praying for additional members of staff or an additional member of staff. And uh, well, we've actually had a number of expressions of interest over the months. We've had uh, lots and lots of CVs and resumes have come our way. Uh, I've had numerous conversations with different candidates. Uh, we actually met three candidates in person. Uh, one of them seems to us like a fantastic uh, guy to be taking forward to the next stage and so this is the stage at which as you now know if you're at All Saints uh, you will be involved because uh, it's right and proper and our polity reflects this fact that congregations should be involved in the selection of pastoral staff to oversee them and to teach them and to minister to them and to care for them and pastor them. So there's going to be a number of different details to this uh, and I'm not going to go into at this stage the particular order of events, how we're going to go about this uh, process, but suffice it to say that you'll have plenty of opportunity to meet him uh, and his wife and family, uh, and there will be a congregational vote at a certain point after you've had time to uh, talk and get to know uh, him and ask him questions and hear him uh, preach and all these kinds of things. And we're going to give you plenty of time to consider and to pray about what's the best thing to do here. And what that means, obviously, therefore, is there must be some criteria which we as the session are going to be asking you to apply in order to assess this person uh, for the post that he's been called to. Uh, to put it in, in a kind of obvious and oversimplified way, uh, we're not asking whether you like his hairstyle, we're not asking uh, whether you like his accent, which is fortunate for those of us who uh, don't yet sound like Texans. Um, we're asking whether you think he fits the kind of profile of the uh, post and the needs of the congregation here. And crucially, and this is the point I want to spend some time on today, uh, whether he meets the biblical criteria for uh, ordained ministry of the gospel. This task is sufficiently significant in the life of the church that in contrast to many other gifts, which are nonetheless very important, for the ordained ministry of pastor, or presbyter, specific requirements are laid down in multiple places in scripture in order to allow churches and church leaders to assess whether men actually meet the requirements. If you think about it in terms of all the other gifts that could be exercised in the church. There are many, many gifts that are needed in the church, many which are very important and those of you who are at All Saints exercise your gifts in many different ways for the service of others in the congregation. All these are really significant, but it is striking that uh, the office of ordained minister has additional specific requirements attached to it. And in order to help you to approach your responsibilities as a congregation biblically and wisely, my plan in this podcast is to walk you through reasonably briefly two significant New Testament texts in which these requirements are laid down. They are 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. And I want to say a little bit about the 
context of each and then just go into the detail. I'll read 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 first, then talk a little bit about that. Then we'll go to Titus chapter 1 and there's a relevant portion there. So without further ado, uh, let me jump in and uh, kick off with 1 Timothy 3 and then I'll just uh, highlight a few things that are going on here that I'm praying and asking you on behalf of the session to have in mind as you're assessing the suitability of the man uh, who we'll be putting before you in the coming weeks, uh, assessing his suitability for the post on the pastoral staff here at All Saints. So here goes, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So what's going on here? Well, uh, the context is worth uh, a qu quick word about. Um, this is uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, which uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul explains that he urged uh, Timothy to remain in Ephesus while he, Paul, went to Macedonia in order, quote, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless speculations, which promote uh, endless genealogies, rather, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And he goes on to explain that basically Timothy's job in Ephesus is to uh, try and keep the church uh, on the right track under the pressure of false teaching and, and erroneous doctrines and ungodly tendencies within the church, which will have the effect, if they're not kept in check, of damaging the life of the church and ruining those congregations. And central to that task is to identify who should be leaders in the church, who should oversee the church, who should be appointed as the older men, the presbyters, the elders in the church. And to that question, he turns in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. Uh, that is a phrase that Paul uses in the pastorals a number of times, which seems designed to highlight particularly significant and, of course, trustworthy sayings. Um, and it, and the, the saying in particular that he's referring to if anyone aspires to the, the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that the desire is noble. Notice that's not what Paul says. He says the task is a noble one. So just think about that for a second. Uh, sometimes we encounter situations in which we have a man, perhaps particularly a young man, but not necessarily a young man, an older man could be uh, equally guilty of this, who feels within himself a deep desire to serve the church, as an elder perhaps, or even as a deacon, um, or as a pastor. And this text could easily be misread to suggest that that desire must be a noble one and must therefore be honoured. It's not what the text says. The text says the task is noble, not necessarily that the desire to fill it is noble. And so this is why we must pay careful attention to the criteria that follow. Um, it is possible, and I believe it's likely or almost certainly the case that in the case of the man that we're presenting to you his desire is noble as well but that's something which we want to urge you to reflect on in the light of the criteria 
which stipulate what kind of a man must fill that role. So, uh, it's interesting, in verse 2, just notice the first thing that is said of this individual, uh, the overseer, and just a word briefly about, before we get onto the, the content of this, the overseer, sometimes the, the term is translated bishop, it's actually the, the Greek word episkopos, from which we get episcopal or episcopalian, uh, churches like that are ruled by bishops. In the early church, the, the distinctions that are now familiar to us between Episcopalian and Presbyterian church government, uh, and other forms of church government for that matter, were not necessarily so clearly defined, not because scripture doesn't speak to those issues. I happen to think that it does, and that Presbyterian church government represents a, a very, very good uh, way of expressing the kinds of priorities for church government that are found in scripture. But we shouldn't be derailed by the fact that the term episkopos or overseer has been uh, uh, become part of Episcopalian church government in a way that it, the term isn't used so much in Presbyterian circles like ours. The point is that this is a man who is responsible for teaching and leadership within the congregation. And the terms uh, episkopos and presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian, uh, means something like older man, the terms are used quite fluidly and almost interchangeably, it seems, at various points in the New Testament. So don't be, don't be uh, derailed by that. Anyway, back to verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, which is a really fascinating thing to say. And this is going to recur again in relation to the overseer's family in a few verses' time. It must be the case that he's the kind of man about whom it's just very difficult to believe, once you know his character and his godliness, that any credible accusation could be raised against him. It's not the case, of course, that elders never go off track. Tragically, it is the case that sometimes they do. But how do you avoid that? Well, you try and find men who are above reproach in the sense that once you've got to know them, once you've got to... Um, uh, understand their character, you've mixed them a little bit, you've spent some time with them, you've listened to them, they've listened to you, perhaps you've prayed with them and you've spent time socially with them. You've seen how they behave in such a way that you know at least from the perspective of people who are looking at this man with biblical eyes, so to speak, th this is a man who you wouldn't hesitate to set out, as uh, to set forth as an example of biblical maturity, biblical godliness, biblical faithfulness. So that's the first question we want to ask, isn't it? Is this the kind of man whom we wouldn't hesitate to set forth as an example of the faith which we're all seeking to live out, above reproach? That is then fleshed out and developed in various ways in the verses that follow. It seems to me that the above reproach functions both as an item on the list in itself and perhaps also as some kind of heading for what follows. The husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, which refers both to the fact that he's not a polygamist and also to the fact that he's single-mindedly devoted to that one wife that he now has. A man could fall short of this by having two wives. He could also fall short of it by being unfaithful to the one wife that he has. Um, the question of whether um, this would permit somebody who had previously been divorced and had remarried on the assumption that the divorce was um, one in which he was the uh, not-at-fault party. That question does arise and is, is sometimes worth discussing, discussing but it, it doesn't arise in this particular instance. So I'm not going to go into that here. It's not relevant to the particular decision that we are um, uh, thinking about because the man that we're looking at has only ever had one wife.
sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Those three things are lumped together here, uh, though they uh, cast light from slightly different angles on a, a set of character traits, don't they? Just think of those three terms, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. There are some men who are um, actually great guys, perhaps quite mature Christians, um, and uh, in some ways would, you think, make great church officers or pastors, but they perhaps take a pride in being somewhat, well, it's not lacking in sober-mindedness in the sense of being drunken, although I think that's partly what's going on here, and, and there's some specific references to that in a moment or two. But there's a kind of delight in edginess, a delight in shooting from the hip, a delight in um, seeking to act in such a way that it's pushing the boundaries of respectability all the time. And that is, it seems to me, something Paul is warning against. What we want in roles of men who are leading churches is somebody who's sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, somebody who doesn't delight in pushing boundaries of respectability, somebody who doesn't delight in the kind of shoot-from-the-hip mentality or the slightly over-the-top mentality that wouldn't be described as sober-minded. Uh, it's not that such a man would not speak forcefully. Uh, it's not even that such a man might be regarded as lacking, re lacking in respectability by people who themselves are ungodly. Lots of people thought Jesus was lacking in respectability because of the ungodly sinners that he hung out with. That's not the point here. It's about personal demeanour and conduct, I think. Hence, it's being paired with sober-minded and self-controlled. That's the kind of man we're looking for, and that's one of the questions you'll have to ask yourselves. Hospitable. Um, if I recall rightly, I'm going to just check the Greek text here. There's a, um, the, uh, where are we, verse 2? Um, yes, philoxenon, uh, literally um, a lover of outsiders. Um, xenon, the second half of that word, uh, is the word from which we get xenophobia. Uh, xenophobia, literally the fear of the other or the fear of difference or fear of different people. Well, philo is the opposite of phobia in Greek. Uh, phobos means fear, philos means love, love of the outsider. Now, I'm not sure that this speaks to the outsider in every respect that we might think of it in the sense of, I don't think it's particularly talking about the kind of immigration debates that, that uh, seems to take centre stage in political life. Although, actually, it has to be said that in the life of Israel, a significant priority was placed, of course, on welcoming the sojourner and the outsider into the community, especially at times of festivals and so on. So perhaps that is in the background. I think that's included in the... Uh, characteristic that's required of somebody who loves to be with somebody who's outside his circle. Just think about that for a second. Outside his immediate family circle. Outside his immediate circle of the kinds of people he clicks with. Really, what we're looking for in a pastor is somebody who has this characteristic of being willing and able to relate to different kinds of people. A lover of those who are outside his circle. Now, in our uh, context, we tend to use the word hospitable or hospitality to refer to hospitality in one's home. And that clearly is a significant part of that. We're looking for somebody who will delight in welcoming 
people from all the different corners of that congregation and beyond into his home? Is he a man who is hospitable in that respect? But more than that, is he a man who seems to have a demeanour of wanting to look beyond his comfort zone, beyond his relational comfort zone? And again, just think of this. Uh, you, there are many people in church life, who are lovely, godly people, but who frankly find it much, much easier to relate to a certain sort of per person than to others. And that's not exactly what you'd call a fault, is it? It's not that such a person is um, wrong for that kind of, preferring to be in the company of a, a particular social subgroup in the church. That, I mean, that could be sinful, it could be wrong, but with an elder, with a, somebody who's charged with the oversight of the whole congregation, they must be able to take them warts and all, to be um, somewhat blunt about it. The church in Ephesus would have had a whole mixture of different sorts of people. Uh, it's a large city, and like many cities in the ancient world and the modern world, it was a cosmopolitan place with lots of different kind of characters around, and the elder must be able to minister to all of them, to be close to all of them, to be uh, able to build relationships with all of them, whether in his home, through his teaching, through his personal interactions. And so that's the kind of character that um, Scripture encourages to look for. Interestingly, next on the list, able to teach. One of the characteristics that we perhaps think of as preeminently important, and it is preeminently important in the sense of um, proclaiming the gospel and defending against um, uh, ungodly doctrine. It's interesting here, it's just thrown in the list with everything else. Um, uh, we might find ourselves at various points looking at the preachers we see in other churches and all you see is their preaching gifts and their preaching gifts might be mighty. Well, that's great. And, and many of us, myself included, have benefited over the years from listening to great sermons from elsewhere. But really, it needs to be the case that your favourite pastor is one of your pastors, or preferably all, both of them or all three of them, I pray, in the years to come. That's uh, this gentleman, if he's able to join us. Um, and the reason that that uh, follows is that um, the able to teach is not something where, well, this is the most significant thing. Get yourself the greatest preacher you can possibly find. Oh, yeah, and then if he's kind of friendly and hospitable and not a drunkard, that's kind of handy. <laughs> this characteristic of being able to teach is vitally important, uh, and it's part of the overall complexion of a man who is able to teach you, able to relate to you, able to be a role model to you and to all of us within the congregation. So an important thing, but it's... It's not the case that what we want to have is a kind of preaching station where we fly the guy in, dump him in the pulpit, he does his thing, and then nobody even knows his wife and his kid's name after five years of him being with us because none of us have been in his house. Um, it's in the mix of these other um, categories. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not, but not a lover of money. There's a bunch of knots here, which in a sense, seem to provide the negative counterpart to the positive character traits enumerated previously, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Clearly, somebody who's self-controlled is not going to be quarrelsome, not going to be a drunkard, uh, not a lover of money, in the sense that he's able to understand and control and focus appropriately and biblically his own desires. But it does look like these are specific areas in which those positive traits enumerated previously could misfire, and therefore we're to look out for them. And perhaps it's a first century thing, 
but I doubt it somewhat. It seems to me that these areas in which men's character can go off the rails reflect the abiding character of sinful human nature. And so we want somebody, pardon me a moment, um, who is not a drunkard. It needs to be the case that after you've been with this man a few times, you've maybe you've gone to uh, first Tuesday cigar night with him, and you've had a beer or two, and you've been at his house on a Sunday afternoon, and he's opened a bottle of wine, and you've had a glass of wine with him. It needs to be the case that having seen how he is in that kind of context, you can't imagine him, imagine him going four, five, six, seven beers. Second bottle of the wi bottle of wine in his glass. It, it's the character of a man who is fit for this ministry is the character of a man who is not a drunkard, not given to much wine, not violent, but gentle. Well, come on, let's be honest. This, this, it's the character of a man who is able to shepherd sheep. Uh, it is true that shepherds at times need to be firm. They need to be firm with wolves. They need to be firm with straying sheep. But the firmness with straying sheep needs to be driven by love for them and care for them and therefore by gentleness. Picture a, a, a shepherd uh, grabbing a sheep out of the ditch and hauling it to safety, or a shepherd uh, tapping a sheep on the side of the head somewhat to prevent him kind of sliding down a ravine somewhere. Well, having got that sheep to safety, he's going to pick him up in his arms, isn't he? Like the Lord Jesus does with us, so to speak. Pick him up in his arms, make sure he's okay, pull all the little um, thorns and tangles out of his uh, uh, the wool and out of his, the soles of his feet, make sure that he's set on the right path because it's not about beating the sheep up to make them comply with your instructions. It is about nurturing the sheep and bringing them back so that they're able to be cared for and, and to flourish. Not quarrelsome. Now, this is really intriguing, especially in this context in First Timothy, where that, frankly, there is plenty to quarrel about. Um, but quarreling is the wrong way to approach theological disagreement. Uh, there is teaching to be done, there is error to be refuted, there are subtle cultural drifts to be resisted, and sometimes not too subtle cultural drifts. But we don't want somebody who's going to resist them by taking every opportunity to argue, to disagree, to be sharp and contrarian at every juncture. I can remember a man whose preaching I was positively shaped by uh, for a number of years, a couple of decades ago, and it was enjoyable. It was, it was good preaching. He was a very powerful and uh, uh, cogent preacher. But I started to notice after a while that the introduction to every single sermon basically comprised the description of the theological error or heresy that uh, he was going to dismantle in the next 25 or 35 minutes. And he dismantled it very well. It was surgical precision applied to these theological errors. He's a very fine theological mind. But after a while, what started to happen is that um, people who were influenced by him started to pick up that spirit of quarrelsomeness. And it was intriguing and somewhat worrisome that a person could be in a position of such influence and basically be negative about all the things that are wrong in the church rather than constructive and looking for ways to build people up. There is a time when heresies need to be refuted and, and uh, truth needs to be stated in contrast to error. But there is a kind of character that delights in that, whether from the pulpit or in personal conversation. And it's not the character of a pastor. Not a lover of money. Again, um, there are lots 
things that could be said about that, but it, this comes down to motives, I guess. There, there was in the first century, and there are in a limited number of contexts today, uh, opportunities for personal gain on a significant scale. Perhaps it was more true in the first century, actually, and, and it's more limited today. I don't think, I don't think anybody who comes to All Saints is going to, as a pastor, is going to come here because of the money. It's not that we're poorly provided for at all, but um, this doesn't seem to be the kind of ministry that that acquisitive sorts get into. But nonetheless, the motive, the desire to serve, the desire to give of oneself, um, has to be at the heart. Verse four and five. Let me read this. This is quite a significant section, and it's somewhat longer. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, this speaks to one of the most significant indicators of a man's ability to shepherd, to teach, uh, at times to rebuke, but to do so gently and to do so effectively, to encourage um, and to nurture and to build. The testing ground for the house of God is the other house, the home. And here that's made uh, crystal clear. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, with all dignity, not with bellowing matches up the stairs to the uh, rebellious teenager, but with dignity. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the household of God, God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is intriguing and it's the first um, of two mentions of the devil in this verse and the next one within this short passage. Um, recent convert. We're looking for a man who has walked the walk for a long time. Uh, think of it in a sense as um, setting out on uh, a journey, perhaps in a boat. If any of you have ever um, been in a rowboat, uh, you'll know that uh, the first couple of strokes, uh, or maybe the first four or five or ten or twelve strokes, before the boat gets kind of moving in the right direction and moving smoothly, the boat is a bit choppy. It's prone to kind of change orientation in the water. One side will dip down, the other side will dip up. The oars and paddles will clunk in the rowlocks and so on. That, that's what happens when you're just setting out on a journey. And there's a Christian equivalent, isn't it? Many of us know the experience, and we've certainly seen it, uh, if we don't know it personally, of someone becoming a Christian. And initially, there's some turbulence in their life. There might be a lot of zeal, and then a lot of self-doubt and then a lot of self-loathing as they uncover more of their own sinfulness, as they're reading more of the word of God. Uh, there may be a sense of the zeal for the word of God uh, starting to display itself in uh, ambitions to teach others. We know of the cage stage Calvinist. Well, there's probably a stage, cage stage Christian. And I've seen that in uh, young Christians particularly. And it's young Christians who are here excluded from the office of pastor. He must not be a recent convert. He actually might have a great future. That recent convert, that young man who's been a Christian, let's say five or six years, and may have a very bright future in the pastoral ministry. Now, every pastor was once a young Christian, but the young Christian should not yet become a pastor. He needs to settle down, have a track record of visible faithfulness in many different situations, like the boat that has been paddled in a consistent direction for many, many years so that it's stable and we all know how he's going to respond to different circumstances because he's been in different circumstances as a Christian. So again, those are some of the things that it would be good to ask our candidate about. How long have you been a Christian? Get to know him, get to know the kind of circumstances that 
uh, he's been through in his life. And uh, I trust that you'll find that helpful in evaluating whether or not um, he is a recent convert and unstable or whether he's a more stable, long-standing Christian man. Interestingly, or he may fall into the, uh, become puffed up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Um, that condemnation of the devil may be either the condemnation that the devil himself experienced, puffed up with pride. Um, there are many uh, writers, especially in the early church, who identified pride as the root of the devil's fall, and perhaps that's right. So maybe it's um, he'll become proud of himself for how well he's doing as a Christian because he's a young convert and he's been ordained. It's possible that condemnation of the devil might be the devil condemning him, uh, having grounds to accuse him as well. Calvin identifies that um, uh, as those two possibilities, but he favours the former. It's likely that a young convert will become proud among all his other instabilities, and he's not a suitable candidate for pastoral ministry. Finally, verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And this is really interesting. I was reading Calvin on this, and I want to read a little bit of what he says to you because it highlights what's uh, puzzling, bear with me a second, about this criterion. Calvin writes, this appears to be very difficult, that a religious man should have as witnesses of his integrity, infidels themselves who are furiously mad to tell lies against us. But the apostle means that so far as relates to external behaviour, even unbelievers themselves shall be constrained to acknowledge him to be a good man. For although they groundlessly slander all the children of God, yet they cannot pronounce him to be a wicked man who leads a good and inoffensive life amongst them. Such is the acknowledgement of uprightness, which Paul here describes. I think that's probably a helpful way of parsing, or perhaps a helpful way of parsing part of what Paul is getting at here. Um, the point is, pardon me, I'm just going to get this so I can see that well on the screen. Uh, there it is. Um, uh, he recognises, Calvin recognises, and I'm sure Paul himself would recognise, that unbelievers are not the best guides to who is suitable for pastoral ministry. Like, how could they be? And in fact, unbelievers frequently tell all kinds of lies or hold all kinds of false judgments or accusations against men and women who are righteous, godly Christians. But there is a kind of uh, Christian uh, faithfulness, which um, as far as relates to un external behaviour, Calvin says, at one level at least, constrains people to acknowledge that he's a good man. So I mean, I, I'm trying to think of an example of this. Um, I'm thinking of the Christian elder statesmen of um, recent memory uh, in the UK, um, John Stott. Uh, would be an example of this. Uh, John Stott was an Anglican clergyman who was very influential um, uh, among evangelicals and uh, reformed people and others in uh, the UK for many decades. And he had many people who disagreed with him very sharply, both inside the church and outside it. But everyone acknowledged him to be a man of dignity and respect and wisdom. Um, to take another example, there are, there are political figures, aren't there, who arouse very, very strong feelings negatively from their political detractors. But there are some who, even though they arouse those sharp feelings, their critics are compelled to acknowledge that you know, this is a good man, this is a good woman. Of course, here we're talking about pastoral ministry, so we're talking about men. Um, but 
uh, there's a distinction between somebody who is thought of by outsiders as just a bad person with some justification, frankly, and somebody which somebody whom even believers, even unbelievers, sorry, are constrained to recognise has a kind of dignity and godliness about them. Such is the kind of man that we should be looking for. Um, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As a test for this, um, just try to imagine introducing the prospective candidate, or by the time you meet him, the candidate for the post here at All Saints. Try and, try and imagine introducing him to your non-Christian friends. Some of you have friends uh, at work or elsewhere who are unbelievers. Imagine that you're having lunch with your new pastor, perhaps, or during the appointment process, you, you met him for lunch at work, or you met him in some other context, and some of your friends were there who weren't Christians. Would you be confident that if they spent an hour or two or three getting to know this man, that notwithstanding their disagreements with him, they would be compelled to acknowledge that he's a decent man. He seems a man of integrity and dignity and wisdom, even though he's a Christian and I'm not, and I disagree with him about lots of things. If that's the kind of man you think he is, then he meets the criterion here in 1 Timothy 3. Okay, more briefly, I'm just going to talk about um, Titus 1. And the reason for saying more briefly, of course, is because many of the qualifications are repeated in one form or another. And so it's not necessary to go into them in such detail. But it is worth making a couple of points. I'll read Titus 1 verses 5 to 9 and then make a few comments about this. Here goes. This is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you saw there a bunch of stuff which is similar at least if not exactly the same as the words used in uh, First Timothy. Uh, one of the differences here of course is the context in which the letter is written. This is Paul's letter to Titus which as you saw or heard in verse 5 uh, uh, is set in a context where Titus has been left in Crete which is uh, well let's just say not your not your easy mission field. Uh, he's been left there to put what remains into order and you think well what's kind of What's the situation in Crete? And famously, you know what the situation in Crete is because um, uh, Paul quotes one of the Cretans in chapter 1, verse 12, a prophet of their own. He's actually the 6th the sixth, sixth, sixth century BC poet, um, uh, Epimenides, who says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul then reports. So, Titus have been left in Crete to sort out the churches, to put what remains into order in a context, and here's the crucial point, where the surrounding culture is filled with wickedness of this kind, which, which for six centuries at least since Epimenides has been filled with depravity and ungodliness and wickedness. So try and imagine what you would do there. If you were required to appoint elders in a context where the church was surrounded by rampant ungodliness in the unbelieving culture around it, what would you want to see well it's not entirely 
different from the situation we find ourselves in here in 21st century America. Um, you'd want to see somebody who could give an irreproachably upstanding example of godliness. And so what do you find? If anyone is, verse 6, above reproach, you see the same emphasis as you got in 1 Timothy, but with a, an even more potent focus on it. You need somebody who in this depraved and ungodly culture is going to be so far out of that moral turpitude and garbage that nobody could conceivably reproach him for any of the cultural sins that are seen around him. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man, again, as in First Timothy, with all the same uh, implications and overtones. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, explicitly here, his children must be believers. Um, so um, you want to see the man's children. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting at all that the children should be subjected to any kind of doctrinal examination, um, much as we don't subject our own children to any kind of doctrinal examination. Um, this requirement recognises implicitly the biblical teaching that children's faith grows as children do. So let's suppose you've got a candidate who's a very uh, who's a father with um, some older children, but some very young children. Well, we're not going to sit the two-year-old down and uh, ask them to recite the Westminster Larger Catechism. But what we will be wanting to see, and this is the crucial thing, what we will be wanting to see is the kind of uh, conduct and life in the family as a whole of our candidate that you'd want to see and expect to see in any Christian family where things are going well. It's not the case that you never have tantrums. Of course it's not. We've all been in that situation, pardon me, where the two-year-old has a meltdown uh, because you know, she wakes up with toothache and uh, she didn't eat breakfast and she didn't sleep very well that night and she chooses five past 11 on a Sunday morning to howl the roof down. We've all had that and that happens in church sometimes. Um, but we are looking for a family life that's consistent with uh, covenant nurture of children who are being uh, discipled, raised well, hence not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So another criterion there. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Uh, much of that repeated before. Interestingly, the arrogance point. It is a peculiarly difficult thing to ask a candidate for pastoral ministry about his gifts, because how does he speak honestly and openly about them without appearing arrogant? Well, he has to manage to do so. Um, we wouldn't want to Hold him, in hold him in reproach for saying honestly what he thinks he's gifted at. Um, but we'd want to make sure that it didn't come across as though he thought he was like God's gift to somebody or other and um, had nothing to learn. Um, all of us have something to learn. Uh, even pastors who've been in the business, so to speak, for uh, three, four, five decades wisely acknowledge that they have much to learn, uh, often from uh, people who are just different from them. And so an arrogant man would not acknowledge that at all. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, grief again, but hospitable, again, uh, as in 1 Timothy 3, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Interesting, the disciplined point here. Um, the, the word is used in a few extra-biblical sources roughly contemporaneous with um, the later Old Testament and early New Testament to mean something like in control of yourself. 
um, able, it's used to in contexts where the, the, the thing being spoken of is a, a place or a city um, to describe a city that's been taken possession of by somebody. So here's a man who's taken possession of himself. He's not blown around by whatever um, flighty concerns might be uh, uh, presented to him at any moment, but he's got a focused and disciplined approach specifically to his calling. Now, this is interesting, uh, particularly in relation to pastoral ministry, because the simple truth is I don't have a boss sitting on my shoulder telling me what to do from moment to moment. Um, when I'm preaching on Sunday, I have to produce a sermon for Sunday. I have other commitments to the congregation where you would begin to notice if I wasn't fulfilling them. But there are actually large parts of my week when nobody is telling me what to do. Uh, a pastor needs to be self-disciplined in the sense of able to get on with the job and committed to doing so. We're looking for a man who, among other things, is self-disciplined in relation to his work, um, has a good work ethic, disciplined in regard to his work. Um, I'm very, very sorry to say that there are contexts in the church in the UK where um, I don't know what time pastors drift out of bed in the morning and knock off halfway through the afternoon, but it doesn't look from what's going on that there's a great deal of disciplined work. The pastoral ministry is hard work. It's, it's a delight and it's a joy and it's it's exciting to see people grow, but it is work that requires you to put your back into it, metaphorically speaking. And so here, in a context where um, uh, you've got, uh, in Crete, uh, lazy gluttons, the requirement for a man who's disciplined is going to be a man who sets himself apart from the laziness of our culture. I was really dismayed to um, read a report recently about um, quiet quitting. You've probably come across this phrase. Google it if you must. Um, uh, but it's the phenomenon of people who are kind of staying at their jobs, but basically doing the absolute bare minimum just to kind of keep things ticking over with no zeal for the growth of the company, no, no uh, commitment to its performance. We don't want a quiet quitting pastor. We want a pastor who's giving himself wholeheartedly to the growth in godliness and size and maturity of the church because he loves the work and he's committed to doing it himself. So you might want to ask about um, the work ethic and the commitment of our candidate. And then finally, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, here is not so much a requirement about teaching, able to teach as in 1 Timothy 3, but doctrinal soundness. Um, and a lot of what's going on in Crete has to do with doctrinal unsoundness, myths and uh, arguments and quarrels and all kinds of nonsense being floated around. And we're looking for someone who holds firm to the word that has been passed on to us through the scriptures by our forefathers in the faith, firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he's able to give instruction in sound doctrine, to build up the church, to strengthen the church positively, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Not so nice that he could never say no. And yet, not so quarrelsome, we don't want anybody who's quarrelsome at all, that he can never say anything else. Somebody who's able to see a biblical, uh, historic Christian perspective on the teaching of the word of God, and to proclaim that and live it out and teach it faithfully and wholeheartedly and joyfully to the congregation, and to uh, draw a line 
to mark out those ungodly and unbiblical tendencies which will tend to draw us away from our commitment to Christ. That's what we're looking for. Okay, I think that'll do. And I realise this has been somewhat longer than um, uh, normal podcast, but I hope you find this helpful. And just to recap uh, the motivation for this, I urge you to have these considerations in mind as you are fulfilling your uh, obligations uh, as members of the church at All Saints uh, within our constitution to assess the suitability of the candidate whom we're going to be presenting to you in the coming uh, weeks. We want to choose the right man for what I'm very excited about, the job that we have to do here. I love being involved in the pastoral staff here. Both Pastor Neil and I consider it an immense privilege. We are uh, very sure that this man will also be a good fit, which is why we're presenting him to you. But we don't get the only word. Uh, we all have a responsibility prayerfully to think about this, uh, to assess uh, this man, to get to know him. So please take the opportunity to do that and prayerfully consider the issues that I've highlighted for you today as you prepare to cast your vote and as you talk about it within your families and the husbands, fathers or heads of household uh, cast their votes in due course. Thank you for your attention. This has been a long one, as I said, and I hope it's been helpful. Uh, the Lord bless you and bye for now.